Hello and welcome to Autonomous Cars with Mark Hogue, the number one result on Google for Autonomous Cars podcasts. I'm Mark Hogue, a California licensed attorney, a 2X startup founder, a UCLA Bruin with a background in engineering and an economics degree, and twice a week we'll be discussing the products, tech, law, policy, and societal impacts of autonomous cars as they bring about the greatest step change in humanity since the Industrial Revolution. Hello, good morning, and welcome. It's Friday, the 5th of April, 2019. This is episode 95. I couldn't resist doing the math. Uh, it looks like the 100th episode of this show will be out on Tuesday, the 23rd of this month. So, wow, I cannot believe. Um, anyway, another very special episode because we've got an incredibly impressive guest. But before I dive into a brief introduction, uh, it's been brought to my attention that, well, if ever there were an example of too much of a good thing, this might be it. We've been getting an astounding number of fantastic guests on the show, and, well, we've kind of neglected to do a standard three-segment episode, you know, in which I sort of discuss the news with you. Um, it's been like three weeks now, I think. So I've been running a poll on Twitter to get your thoughts on this. You know, should I space out these guest interviews with the more standard episodes? And... For whatever reason, it hasn't generated that many votes, but the few votes that it's got so far suggest that, yes, in fact, I should definitely spread these out. So I'll try to do this going forward. And in fact, because I've been getting so many requests for interviews, I think it's time that I absolutely set up a Google Sheet or a Calendly on which people can simply submit their contact information, then I sort of schedule them in the queue. Right. Anyway, uh, enough about that. Today's guest, as I say, very, very privileged indeed to have him on our show today because he is none other than the founding partner, the managing partner of the one and only Woodside Capital Partners in Silicon Valley, Rudy Berger. Um, I will defer to him for his really fascinating introduction. Uh, it's astonishing the amount of things he's done. The, uh, the credentials that he holds. So um, without further more to say about Rudy, I'll hand it off to him. Episode 95 begins now. Real quick, before we dive in, I would like to share with you something of a rather more personal nature, if you'll be good enough to grant me the next two minutes or so, if you please. Um, on Monday, April Fool's Day, I'd written a post that was very widely read and warmly received. And although I had initially hesitated to share it here on the podcast in what I perceive to be a rather more public medium, well, I have decided that I would like to read it for you now, today, more or less verbatim. So here it goes. With a few hours left to April Fool's, I would like to clarify that this is decidedly not a prank. After months of difficult deliberation and deep introspection, I have decided to officially step down from my day-to-day -day duties at Twibble, that's my startup that I've been running for the last four years, and to focus full-time on my career pivot into the autonomous vehicle space. Since launching my podcast in February 2018 and growing it to the number one spot on Google, it is abundantly clear to me that I need to follow this passion as surely as I must breathe another breath. Gosh, that was melodramatic. Uh, but I suppose this should come as no surprise to me or those of you who know me or have followed my passionate, voluminous writing on autonomous vehicles, or cars generally, the last few years, there comes a point in our lives where the need to follow our passions exceeds the relatively puerile thrill 
of doing merely what we want and instead becomes a thing that we need. I don't know where this pivot will take me. My intent is to land a role at a consulting firm where I can help to grow its autonomous vehicle practice, or perhaps an AV startup or an OEM automobile manufacturer looking to get into the AV space like so many are, where I can apply my years of entrepreneurial expertise in a product management type role, or perhaps something applying my legal background to the law and policy, bridging that gap, that great unknown as between the technology and policy. And so I embrace this career shift with arms wide open as I step forward into this, the greatest step change in humanity since the Industrial Revolution. So there you have it, melodrama and all. Um, anyway, just really did want to share that with all of you, so thank you so much for your time. Yeah, without further more to do, let's dive in and get started. The next 30 minutes with Rudy Berger begins now. Rudy, good of you to join us. Thanks so much. Um, be very happy to talk with you, Mark. Very good. So uh, if you could perhaps uh, dive into a bit of your background, obviously, I'm, you know, I've read a bit about your uh, vast foray into all things tech, including and especially computer vision, and uh, I guess more recently, autonomous vehicles, which obviously is largely why you're, we're doing this chat today. I uh, would love to hear a bit about your background and how you've ended up here, of course, uh, Woodside Capital and everything you guys are up to in the autonomous car space. Sure. Well, uh, I have been uh, running Woodside Capital for about 20 years now. I founded the company originally, and I head up the um, sector practice um, around um, imaging and sensing and vision. And of course, autonomous vehicles are one of the key markets where uh, those technologies uh, are being applied you know, over the last uh, few years. Uh, prior to that, I was um, a serial entrepreneur, started five companies in the imaging space, um, helped take one public to successful trade sales. Um, I uh, started and ran the MIT Media Lab in Europe, um, was a vice president of software at Xerox for a while, um, did my PhD in digital imaging at Cambridge University and undergrad at Yale, and grew up in the UK. That's my entire life in about two minutes. That's pretty impressive, both in terms of less than two minutes and the uh, vast range of experience and background, certainly. Well, very cool. Um, so let's see, with respect to, I guess, the work now at Woodside Capital insofar as, say, the sort of, you know, diving into autonomous car space, I guess if we can start sort of high level, get your thoughts on the space generally, and then we can kind of drill into what kind of flows naturally out of this, because obviously so much to discuss, so many different views, opinions with respect to, well, computer vision specifically, obviously lots of, I was going to say discussion, really lots of debate insofar as whether things must go the LIDAR uh, route or whether we can, in fact, rely solely on computer vision. I'm thinking, of course, of Tesla and Elon Musk. Um, so yeah, high level first, where do you think things are headed? What's exciting you right now about the space and what are the challenges we have to look forward to? So, you know, there are so many different dimensions that this can be talked on, but I suppose primarily um, the two that interest me are the um, dimension of, firstly, the technology, um, you know, what's actually possible today. 
um, and you know what's possible and safe. And then secondly, the uh, whole sort of um, regulatory, uh, social, cultural side of it. Um, you know, I, I think there is a very interesting difference uh, on the regulatory and cultural side between the U.S. and, and Europe. Um, the um, in Europe recently, I was talking with a senior executive from Daimler who told me that um, the company will not introduce autonomous vehicles onto public roads until the EU has defined a set of regulations which makes clear, you know, what is the definition of safe, what is safe enough, um, and a regulatory framework. Um, the reason being that if a Daimler vehicle, um, in his view, were to kill uh, somebody, uh, an autonomous Daimler vehicle would kill somebody, um, that would destroy the Daimler brand forever. Um, whereas in the US, firstly, from a regulatory standpoint, um, I'm not sure that the federal government is ever going to get involved in this, uh, at least not for the uh, foreseeable future. You know, it really most of the um, regulations around, you know, driving are handled by the states, uh, not by the federal government. Um, and secondly, you know, of course, autonomous vehicles have already killed three people in the US, and it doesn't seem to have made much difference, if any, to uh, the brands of Tesla and, uh, um, and uh, Uber. So, you know, we start with a very interesting and different, um, you know, regulatory approach between uh, the US and Europe. I do think Europe is going to lead the way on um, uh, defining regulatory framework, uh, much as it has done for uh, recently for privacy with uh, GDPR. Um, mm. Switching gears to the technology side, um, you know, Every time I go to a conference, and I go to many of them giving keynotes, uh, you know, probably went to a dozen last year alone, um, the uh, researchers tell me that, um, you know, we're still very much, the developers tell me that we're still very much at the research stage um, in developing these technologies, uh, and in particular, the AI um, that, you know, binds it all together. And meanwhile, the executives tell me that they're launching this year. So, you know, I, I hope that both of those aren't correct at the same time, although I, I suspect they are. Right. Hopefully it's some sort of a weighted average and we end up with something sorted in the middle. <laughs> well, so what's going to be what, what's going we're going to find in the middle is that I believe that, you know, despite Cruz's protestations, uh, continued protestations that they are launching driverless robo taxis in San Francisco this year. Right. Um, I think in reality, what we're going to see are a continuation of a very limited um, public trials, such as what we have going on in Arizona today. Um, you know, to the extent that um, the deployment of autonomous vehicles can be restricted to you know, relatively small, uh, very well mapped and understood uh, geographical areas. Right, so basically geofenced testing and yes exactly right mm -hmm. exactly so you know i think that that um and and you know we'll see a gradual expansion from that but we are most certainly not going to 
wake up one day um, and find that, you know, you can sort of suddenly take a, a robo taxi from anywhere to anywhere. Right. So let's dive into some of those items you mentioned. I mean, so with my background uh, as an attorney, one of the things that really does interest me is what you just touched on is, first of all, this sort of hands off approach from a federal point of view here in the U.S., um, your claim that in Europe, for example, where Daimler to have been found to kill a human with an autonomous vehicle, this would be sort of the end of it, as it were. Well, that um, was one executive's opinion. Got um, it. Yeah. And, yeah. And that makes sense. I mean, I, I, guess, I guess it raises an interesting question, though, right? So I'll just sort of throw out to you the hypothetical I've raised with several others, uh, which is, you know, you're in an airplane and the plane crashes due to human error on landing or it crashes due to autopilot error on landing. Yep. Which do we as a society sort of have a harder time accepting? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's interesting. I'm not sure that society makes at this point with planes um, makes. And I, I, I'm a pilot myself. So I think oh. about that parallel uh, all the time. Um, I don't think society um, makes much of a distinction today, um, uh, you know, with the exception, of course, of what's going on with um, you know, Boeing and the 737 MAX. Um, I, I don't think society makes a distinction between uh, the pilot and the autopilot. Um, I think uh, what gets tarnished is the brand of the airline. And, um, you know, uh, most of the time the public isn't trying to figure out whether the plane did something wrong or the pilot did something wrong. It was the airline did something wrong. So that's a really good distinction. Perhaps I misspoke. I, I guess an individual then. So suppose, you know, one were aware of it. Suppose that you individually, uh, yeah. knock on wood, you were in a crash and you knew that it was caused by, I mean, you survived, everything was fine otherwise. But yes, there was a crash landing uh, due to autopilot error versus pilot error. Which would trouble you, which would upset you more on a pure human level? Um, it would upset me more if um, I was in control of the plane um, and crashed it. Right. Interesting. Fair enough. And I would assume this is also because you indeed are a pilot. Um, so where I was going with this is that it seems generally um, it seems that people are generally uh, actually OK with humans making errors. But we just sort of have a hard sort of a threshold for for computers making errors. Yes, but okay I, with it. I think that's going to change uh, inevitably because right. computers are taking over more and more aspects of our society. Yeah. I mean, first of all, um, I think that the industry itself has sort of set itself up for um, not exactly failure, but certainly uh, disappointment. Um, uh, we have, it, at least in Europe, and I think maybe it, as U.S. as well, the, the industry has adopted this sort of vision zero. Right. Um, um, well, Volvo, Volvo pushed this forward, first of all, right? Seven yeah, years ago. that's right. Mm -hmm. uh, which I think is crazy. Um, you know, we will not get to a situation in which there are you know, zero accidents um, uh, ever caused by um, you know, autonomous vehicles. Um, 
you know, or involving autonomous vehicles because, you know, um, unpredictable things happen. Um, so, you know, it, it's setting the industry up for failure. What we should have done is said we have a vision of 50% or 90%, you know, that the vision is to cut road um, fatalities by, um, you know, by X percent. That is certainly achievable. But the idea that we can make it 100% safe always under all circumstances is, is, uh, is simply not achievable. I, I agree, obviously, numerically, objectively, factually, that's certainly true. I suppose perhaps Vision Zero just rolled off the tongue a bit better. So if only to use hyperbole for <laughs> nomenclature, no maybe that was the idea. I mean, to be fair, aviation, wouldn't you say? I mean, so I happen to be uh, a rather um, hopeless aviation geek myself. Uh, yeah. Don't know what I love more, cars or planes. But I mean, arguably, I, I always like to say that being in a commercial aircraft anyway, at cruising altitude, is arguably the safest place you can be within the globe. Absolutely. I mean, so... Right. I mean, so by certain metrics, anyway, one could say that aviation has effectively reached as hyperbolic as it admittedly is effectively I, I, I a vision right. zero. I, I, yeah, I think that's right. And by the way, um, uh, develop, designing and developing autopilot for a plane mm. and being a pilot yes. um, that can uh, engage and disengage autopilot is trivial. Totally agree. To the autopilot challenges of, uh, you know, car on the road. No, absolutely. Well, so let's run with this aviation theme for a moment. Uh, I do tend to like to do this. Um, so, so with respect to the federal government taking a rather hands-off approach, um, so I've said on a few occasions in the last several months that I firmly believe we're going to see the need eventually for, well, an FAVA, a Federal Autonomous Vehicle Administration, to kind of really uh, take control of, of things in the way the FAA uh, here in the U.S. and, of course, internationally um, ICAO, I-O-L-T-A, I'm forgetting the acronyms yeah. now. Um, what do you think of that, at least at a high level? Does that at least intuitively make sense to you at a gut feeling? Uh, well, not? it does. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm not an expert on, you know, um, regulations anywhere. Um, but, you know, of course, there, we also have the NTSB. Um, yep. And, you know, I believe that their jurisdiction does um, cover both um well, certainly, um, I believe it covers both, um, you know, air travel and uh, road travel. Uh, I could be wrong about that. But um, um, uh, so I think that there is already a federal organization that, you know, is empowered to look into um, uh, both. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, you know, as, as I say, I, I, I'm not an expert in, uh, you know, the, the regulatory framework uh, around uh, either um, aviation or road traffic. And of course, you know, drones are rapidly coming online and that's another area well, that is yeah. going to have to be regulated. Um, you know, I, I, I see the day rapidly approaching where both autonomous vehicles and drones are going to have to go the way that uh, commercial airlines have, right. that they will have unique radio unique signature radio beacons broadcasting their location um, you know, um, at all times. And, you know, there will be no doubt uh, an uproar in this country around, you know, privacy concerns and so forth. But I think yeah. then uh, that this is inevitable. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. 
With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. You're suggesting sort of by analogy, the equivalent to an airplane transponder, for instance. Exactly. Right. I mean, right. the first thing that, you know, it, it, the first thing um, that will fall under that uh, will be uh, drones uh, yep. of all Agreed. types. Agreed. Um, you know, it's amazing to me that we've gotten this far without uh, some regulation requiring that, you know, drones all have a transponder. Um, but, you know, so they can show up on, um, you know, on radar with a unique, um, you know, right. a, a unique serial number. Agreed. Yeah. All right. So let's let's go back briefly. Then there was a discussion earlier. You mentioned, um, you know, suggesting geofence deployment of vehicles. So, so one of the things I've said in the past is that, you know, I think there seems to be a bit of a there's sort of a binary approach insofar as people's opinion as to how cars should be rolled, autonomous vehicles should be rolled out. Um, obviously, level four is by definition, uh, you know, it's going to still have a steering wheel. Obviously, it's still yeah. going to be somewhat. You, know, you can't use it everywhere at all times. Obviously, level five, by definition. You can use it everywhere. There's no steering wheel and so on. Um, but that, that sort of suggests in a way that, that we should see geofenced deployments as sort of simple, uh, trivial test cases and not really a full deployment. And I've suggested, but look, if you consider a train or a bus with overhead electrical wires, nobody looked at those and thought those were so limiting. Rather, we can yeah. embrace it as sort of a liberating thing and say, yeah, that is how they're going to be deployed. And by embracing that geofenced reality and just making it a very broad geofenced area, I suppose, that's not so limiting at all. In fact, wouldn't that help to fast track things? So why not just focus I think on that? It, I think it will. And, um, you know, firstly, I think the technology is going to uh, require this uh, limitation, as I said. Hmm. But, you know, it, it, these will be commercial deployments where the passengers will um, pay for the transportation. Right. Um, and it could be, um, you know, a uh, situation where, you know, you get shuttled around an airport, um, you know, or, um, you know, a large campus. Um, um, indeed, I think one of the things that perhaps we have wrong in the public conception of um, um, these vehicles um, is that in some ways, I think it may be more accurate to think about the evolution of autonomous vehicles as an extension of public transportation mm -hmm. rather than an extension of, of private transportation. Right. Um, and of course, that will be an easier um, story to tell in Europe. Um, you know, for the most part, you know, we're so allergic to public transportation in the U.S. that uh, I, I think that, you know, that wouldn't help. Um, you know, sell the AV story, but, um, you know, to um, reduce traffic congestion, um, you know, on the roads, there are already um, cities that have limited certain areas to buses and taxis. Right. Um, you know, certainly um, extending that to uh, perhaps having areas that are limited only to robo taxis. Um, um, you know, I can I can see that um, as a um, a stepping stone um, that you know could be uh, commercially viable um, and much safer. 
totally agreed. I mean, I've often used the somewhat weird analogy of, you know, we've got pedestrian only zones, so why not have autonomous vehicle only zones? Exactly. It seems to me that, that, that cities would actually have a big incentive to do this, if only from a benefit to, say, the benefit to commercial shop, shopping district zones. I mean, I, I feel like in many cities, um, it must be the case that the local businesses probably pitch in to help subsidize parking costs where you can get one or two hours of free parking. I yeah. don't know if this is the case, but I'm assuming it must be the case. Um, yeah. It seems to me, though, that if there were an, an autonomous vehicle only zone, this would really further help sort of increase foot traffic, as it were. Um, so, yeah, I, I could see businesses absolutely wishing to, to pitch in and so, sort of make know, that happen. It's, it's the sort of place you might see this um, limited trials of this starting to happen would be, of course, uh, places like Mountain View. Right, um, where there are you know a number of uh, very large employers, uh, Google in, in yep. particular, um, and tr- just crazy congestion, traffic congestion problems. Right, um, and um, you know I think that because the trend has been towards these large employers, Facebook, Apple, Google creating campuses which are kind of you know designed so that the employees never actually have to leave um you um uh, you know I, and i think that the towns and the municipalities would like to um, reduce congestion and have um make it easier for the um you know employees of these companies to get around within the town so that you know that would benefit local businesses so you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see, um, you know, areas like Mountain View looking to deploy uh, robo taxis to make it easier for people to, say, get off Caltrains and get to their place of work. Um, um, and yeah, so. Well, and that would be great. That's because that's ironically tackling the last mile dilemma where previously it was always said, well, autonomous vehicles can do sort of the intermediary miles fine but it's the last mile that will be tricky yeah. here what you're describing is exactly the reverse of that which weirdly makes perfectly sound sense yep yeah yep. so so let's switch gears a bit um obviously about what you're doing with seeing machines there's been a lot of discussion lately uh obviously about the need for and the astonishing lack of driver yeah. monitoring systems yeah. What are your thoughts? I have to just drop this bombshell for a moment. You're you're familiar with, I am sure, this mysterious little camera in the Tesla Model 3, yes? Yes, I am. Okay. Why is it not active? (laughs) What is it for? I have no idea. (laughs) So uh, a certain individual by the name of Alex Roy, uh, whose name may ring a bell, uh, he's got this really fantastic theory that the singular reason for which that is not active is that the original builds of Model S and Model X vehicles do not have such a camera. And so to activate it now would implicitly suggest that the S and X models are therefore less safe than the Model 3 and therefore just don't activate it at all. Hmm. Well, <laughs> that would be, I mean, in true, that's fairly perverse because, I mean, of course, well, yeah. we expect uh, companies to improve the functionality and the safety of vehicles as each year goes by. So holding up the, you know, what we've done before as the benchmark for what we're going to do in the future would seem to be, um, you know, pretty backwards. Yeah. 
but I really don't know, um, um, you know, what it's for. Um, I do know that, um, you know, we are, I believe, in much the same way that, um, you know, cameras, reverse cameras have, have been, um, uh, are now required. Um, you know, I do think that forms of driver monitoring um, are going to be increasingly required. Um, you know, both once we really get into level three to ensure that, you know, A, there's actually a driver sitting in the driver's seat um, um, and B, that they're uh, paying attention um, and, you know, not asleep in the driver's seat. Um, but I also think on a, a slightly more sophisticated level that how a car responds to something that happens in the road ahead should depend at least in part on what the driver's looking at when mm. that event happens ahead. Um, it may simply be a more or less drastic um, you know, response to the same thing. But clearly, common sense would suggest that, um, you know, if the driver's looking down at their lap, meaning they're probably, you know, sending a text message, um, versus can be seen to be actually looking at the um, event that's occurring, um, you know, the car can uh, uh, respond uh, differently in each situation. So, you know, I do think that uh, we're going to see um, uh, certain types of driver monitoring um, mandated um, in the future. Right. So reading up on seeing machines, um, that seems to be then sort of exactly the focus of the work. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Seeing Machines is a driver monitoring company. Uh, the company got started uh, many years ago in the mining industry in Australia um, mm. because um, there are big problems with these open face mines um, where drivers work very long shifts driving these enormous caterpillar uh, earth moving equipment right and mm -hmm. um you know can literally fall asleep at the wheel and these vehicles are so large that they can literally run over a car and you wouldn't even feel it um <laughs> so um uh, you know the the sig machines initially was uh focused at doing you know driver monitoring within these the, the operated cabs of these vehicles and that developed into a very close working relationship with Caterpillar. Um, and then over time, that technology has found its way into, um, you know, on-road fleets, um, uh, tractor trailers, um, you know, trains, buses, and over the last sort of four or five years into uh, OEM deployments, starting with the launch of uh, GM's Cadillac and um, we've now announced, um, I think it's five or six different, um, you know, OEMs, uh, OEM partnerships. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So without explicitly looping back to a talk on Tesla, I mean, in the broad sense, generally, yep. this discussion with respect, again, just trying to circle back to your focus on computer vision yeah, specifically. Yeah. I mean, is it... Do you agree that if the end game, I'm trying not to lead this question here, uh, if the end game of computer vision is that eventually it must be at least as good as humans yes. and therefore eventually even better, then is it not true uh, that, that, it, that, that eventually then LIDAR may indeed be unnecessary after all, if I the end game believe, is successfully reached? I don't know what the time frame is. 
but <clears throat> my experience has been in the industry. You know, I, I graduated in 1980 and went to work at IBM Research in a VLSI, a bipolar VLSI um, design group. Why bipolar? Mm -hmm. Because the conventional wisdom was that CMOS would never scale <clears throat> to be fast enough to replace bipolar. Then mm -hmm. years later, um, you know, uh, the conventional wisdom was that um, we needed CCD uh, for sensors because CMOS mm -hmm. image quality would never be uh, good enough to replace CCDs. Mm -hmm. um, on the output side, um, the conventional wisdom a number of years ago was that uh, LCD panels would never be large enough for televisions. So we needed <laughs> um, a plasma, we needed rear projection TVs. Right. The long and short of it is, is that every time an industry has bet against the incumbent technology being able to scale to um, uh, meet a particular demand, um, most times that bet has been wrong. Um, and so, <clears throat> you know, look, as humans, we have two very capable image sensors and uh, a very capable processor. So, um, and the reason... Most of us anyway. Excuse me. <laughs> Most yeah, of us yeah. anyway. <laughs> um, and the reason that there are, you know, 30,000 plus accidents a year uh, on the roads is is for the most part not because of deficiencies in our, um, our um, you know, vision sensors or our right. brain. It's because, you know, we get distracted and we do stupid things. Um, Agreed. So um, you could make the argument that, you know, all of these other sensor modalities, LIDAR, radar, thermal, you know, and, and so forth, are there um, simply because we don't have image sensors that are good enough to replace, um, you know, our eyes. Uh, for example, the dynamic range of um, most, um, you know, CMOS image sensors are, is way inferior to the human eye. Um, right. But that will change over time. And in fact, there are reasons to believe that image sensors uh, can, um, by extending them inf into the infrared, um, you know, for night vision and so forth, can actually become quite a bit more capable than our eyes. Um, so yes, I, I think that in the long term, and I don't know, that's talking decades probably, um, I think um, you know, there's reason to believe that uh, cameras and vision sensors um, can um, replace more and more of, the, of what we see as um, you know, a requirement for LIDAR and, and radar and, and so forth today. But that's clearly not the case today. And to make a, you know, to, to maximize safety on, on these uh, robo-taxis, um, you know, conventional wisdom, I think, is correct that we need to throw as many different senses at it as we can. Well, yeah, and, that, and that's really good to hear, right? Because my understanding is, of course, with LIDAR, that we are going to be necessarily limited insofar as what we can achieve with the power limitations of LIDAR insofar as what wheel or will not cook our retinas and so on right so we're going to have to need something better and to your point if camera vision eventually gets to that point then well well that will necessarily be better i i think that in terms of cooking retinas i think that long term um and and possibly even in the in the short to medium term i do expect to see 1550 nanometer um lidars um you know 
become the uh, predominant choice. Uh, really? So you think the cost issue will cease to be a thing? Uh, again, you know, yes, I do. Eventually, I, I do. yeah. Um, because, you know, the eye safety uh, issue, um, you know, is paramount. And, um, you know, in order to get LIDAR to work well at distance, you know, let's say, you know, 200 meters, um, uh, in all weather conditions, you cannot do that with 900, um, you know, nanometer or 905 or whatever. Sure. Um, you need, in order to be able to use a LIDAR to see, in, for example, a snowstorm um, <clears throat> um, at range, you need to be able to put quite a bit of power uh, through that laser. And the only way to do that safely is to go to 1550. Hmm. That makes sense. Well, if indeed it is simply a cost limitation at this point, then I tend to share your opinion that eventually that should be overcome. Um, I do know that Innoviz are working with BMW now on their solid state LiDAR, which is uh, still relying on 905, but they've got yeah. some clever software solution, I guess, which sort of compensates for the lack of range. Well, well um, you know, most of the solid state LiDARs and, and much of the innovation over the last year or two, um, you know, has been around solid state flash LiDARs, um, you know, mm -hmm. FMCW, um, um, you know, most of that has been at the, you know, nine, 900 um, um, nanometer regime. Um, mm -hmm. Because, you know, if you're trying to produce a, a LiDAR that can be sold to an OEM for a few hundred dollars, you cannot go to 1550. You know, the, um, at least, you know, it, it takes significant volume um, you know, to get uh, that, I mean, you know, the, the fiber lasers themselves, uh, 1550, um, you know, are, um, over a thousand dollars. Sure. Right. Well, I, I just realized, uh, you know, with respect to your time, I want to point out that we've astonishingly already exceeded 30 minutes. Uh, obviously it's up to you. Um, I'd love to open it up to you insofar as, uh, if there's anything you'd like to add, uh, insofar as the sure. sorts of companies that, Woodside looks for in the autonomous car space because it's on the one hand quite broad and yet on the other hand there's a very big need for a singular focus I think sure. certain aspects of the tech well uh, let me I will finish up with that I think one one thing that uh, we, we haven't touched on that um, um, I, I believe to be true mm. is that um, you know while uh, deep learning is has shown itself to be extremely capable at you know certain tasks such as you know winning a game of chess winning a game of go um, you know and so forth i do not believe that it will ever be sufficient to enable um autonomous vehicles uh to um you know drive to replace humans in all situations. Well, isn't it because those systems for the, the board games anyway, weren't those sort of rules-based essentially, yeah. which by definition cannot work as you say with cars. Exactly, they're mm -hmm. well-bounded problems. They're right, exactly. Based. Yep. Um, you know, there is a reason why humans can, you know, be taught to drive um, in a very limited set of circumstances um, and then, you know, put out on the, on the road and not, you know, immediately crash. 
Um, and that is, you know, we're able to infer things. Um, uh, we're able to use intuition, what we call common sense. None of these attributes are, are available to, you know, a deep learning uh, system. Um, my, one of my favorite examples as a pilot in, in the Bay Area is that, you know, if you have an engine out, um, you know, in the peninsula mm. um, and you cannot get back to uh, an airport, um, a, uh, a reasonable place um, to choose to land would be on 101 or 280. Mm. And that has happened. Um, now, um, as a human driver, I may never have seen a plane landing um, in front of me on 280, but I'm quickly going to know what's happening and, you know, have a pretty good idea of what I should do. Right? I think it's unlikely that we're going to be training. Uh, well, it's impossible that we could train um, uh, an AV uh, system to recognize every instance of everything that could possibly happen. Well, this is the whole corner paradox thing, right? the whole corner case paradox. Thing. Yeah. You can't, you literally can't do it. You're right. You, you um, cannot do it. So right. I think we're going to need um, to develop um, a completely new approach to, um, uh, you know, to um, AI that, um, you know, is not solely reliant on, um, you know, deep learning. Um, before we get to this sort of nirvana of AV, uh, you know, autonomous vehicles, um, you know, in, in every situation uh, anywhere. Uh, I mean, that sounds like it's a big step change we're going to need then, and it, it rather is, than an evolutionary it, improvement. It, it absolutely is, and it, I, I think it is a step change and not uh, mm -hmm. just a, mm -hmm. you know, a, a gradual improvement on, uh, you know, deep learning uh, techniques. Um, the in terms of Woodside Capital, um, you know, we, our clients are generally, so first of all, we mostly do sell-side M&A um, involving companies that are generating, you know, a few million dollars, maybe five, ten million dollars up to, you know, let's say, you know, a uh, hundred million. And, you know, we find typically much larger public companies to buy them. Um, and, you know, typically these transactions are, let's say, you know, sub 500 million. Uh, so these are not the mega transactions that appear on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, but they are in fact the vast majority of the M&A transactions that happen every year. Um, so in my case, I look for companies that have key enabling technologies, uh, solving particular um, you know, market uh, requirements using um, you know, sensors, technology processes um, across autonomous vehicles, across um, safety and security, surveillance operations and, and consumer. So that can go anywhere from sensors to cloud-based services to new types of algorithms, um, but broadly within and and of course the you know um, AI and and in, uh, increasingly AI processes that sit around these areas. So Woodside has deep domain expertise in the area of 
uh, computer vision, sensing, um, AI semiconductors, IoT, and indeed, uh, you know, AI in general. Well, that, that's good to know. I'm glad I asked. I mean, one of the neat things about doing this podcast, obviously, is I get introduced to a lot of folks uh, on a weekly basis, really. So I'm certainly happy to forward some introductions your way, if you'd like, uh, as they fit the bill. Um, Fantastic. Uh, you know, I, I would, um, I, of course, greatly appreciate that. That would be my pleasure. Absolutely. Well, Rudy, this has been pretty fantastic. Obviously, it's really great to uh, get acquainted with you. And certainly, I hope to, uh, you know, we're more or less in the same neighborhood. It would be great to meet up at some point and uh, would love to. chat further. Um, but yeah, I really. In, I live in Los Altos and live in Los Altos and work in Palo Alto. Well, perfect. Very good. Yeah. Great pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Mark. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Well, that's a wrap for today. A huge thank you to Rudy for joining me on today's episode. It's been a real pleasure to have you with us. To everybody else, thank you so much for listening. As always, if you enjoy this show, please don't forget to continue to share it with your friends and colleagues. It's the only way this show continues to grow. And of course, leave it five stars on iTunes if you enjoy it. Or I suppose leave one star if you don't. Let me know how I can improve. Don't forget to follow me on all social media at Autonomous Hogue. And with that said, have a wonderful weekend ahead. I'll see you here next Tuesday, episode 96. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye.